is with us this weekend, and we are very blessed to have him. Uh, if, before I say anything, I was told to make sure everyone here knew that Addie Burnett says about Brother Chuck that he is the GOAT. Okay, so we are witnessing the greatest of all time. That's what that means uh, to some people who don't know. It's not like the sheep and the goats. It's this new thing. It's a good thing, I promise. Um, so we're very blessed to have him with us tonight. Uh, Brother Chuck is uh, known uh, colloquially as the pigskin preacher. The pigskin preacher. Uh, I think that's because he's a big football fan. Uh, not a coincidence tonight. Brother Billy leads singing. We all know Brother Billy is a Michigan fan. Brother Chuck is a Michigan fan. Okay, we're doing that. All right. Brother Chuck's a Michigan fan. He should be really happy tonight as you lead us tonight. So, no excuses. You won the championship. All right. Chuck Monin is currently the minister at the Pinnacle Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. He has been in ministry for nearly four decades, having served at congregations in Michigan, Oklahoma, and in Arkansas. He received both his bachelor's degree and his master's degree from Oklahoma Christian University uh, there in Oklahoma, and we're very happy to have him tonight. Uh, there will be much more to be said about him throughout the weekend but brother, come on and preach to us. Thank you, Ben. Ben uh, treated me to a delicious dinner tonight. Uh, what was that? Rico's World Cuisine. Very nice. Very nice. You, you got to be careful if you're preaching if they feed you too much because the, the, there's an inverse ratio. The more you eat, the worse the sermon is. So if you deem this... Uh, meh or mediocre as the young people say it's probably because I had too much food so uh, there is that but uh, uh, Ben is a charming young man I uh, really uh, enjoyed getting to know him over dinner I figured uh, since Ben Hogan took me to dinner tonight I'm looking forward to tomorrow as Jack Nicholas uh, takes me out and then maybe Sunday Sam Sneed and uh, Chi Chi Rodriguez and We'll work our way through the lineup uh, there. But we appreciate you being out here tonight. I, you know, this is, you never know what you're going to get in the winter. You know, it's 20 degrees out there, raining sideways. But God bless all of you for being here this evening. This is, a, this is probably really cold for Georgia, isn't it? Uh, it? This is a spring day in Michigan. Syria, uh, it's like that for about eight months a year up there. But uh, we're glad that you could be with us tonight. We're going to have a good weekend together. Uh, the Lord will bless our efforts. I have no doubt about that as we talk about things that are going to be challenging uh, and hopefully that will give us the opportunity to have a shot in the arm, to be rejuvenated as God's people. It's always part of any endeavor uh, that you can have a uh, kind of a malaise come over you. You, you can do that in a marriage, you can do that in a relationship, in a job, in a career, in a hobby, and whatever it is uh, that happens. And we're going to talk about some things this weekend that will help us to have a spring in our step and move forward in the work that we do in serving the Lord. Tonight's lesson, we're talking about a crisis of confidence. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says these words. As surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. As a Christian, in this new year in 2024, do these words from the Apostle Paul describe your attitude? Are you excited and optimistic as to what the future holds for God's church? 
Are you living in eager expectation to see what God has in store for his people? Or are you afraid? Go back in time some four decades. There was a fella from Plains, Georgia that was occupying the Oval Office, a fellow by the name of Jimmy Carter. As I was coming across Atlanta from the airport today, uh, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library, Jimmy Carter Boulevard, Jimmy Carter this, and a lot of things uh, named uh, after our former president. But back in 1979, Jimmy Carter did something that took an astonishing amount of nerve and no small amount of courage. He addressed the country and in a speech that was ostensibly about United States energy policy, he wasn't really talking about the United States energy policy. He wasn't talking about rising gas prices or turning uh, your thermostat down to 60 degrees or driving 55. I think it was Sammy Hagar that said, I can't drive 55. Well. Yeah, you can if you go through Atlanta because everybody's going 25 because of gridlock. I noticed that. But in that speech that Carter made in 1979, he was talking about the gloom and the pessimism that had settled over many Americans. Historians look back and they call this the malaise speech which is fascinating because the word malaise never appeared anywhere in the speech. But that was the tone that the president affected. Here is some of what he said. And we share this because it sets the tone for what we're going to talk about tonight. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in growing doubt and about the meaning of our own lives and the loss of a sense of unity and purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. The symptoms of this crisis of the American spirit are all around us. For the first time in the history of our country, a majority of our people believe that the next five years will be worse than the last five years. Two-thirds of our people do not even vote. The productivity of American workers is actually dropping, and the willingness of Americans to save for the future has fallen below that of all other people in the Western world. As you know, there is a growing disrespect for government and churches and schools, the news media and other institutions, this is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth, and it is a warning. These changes did not happen overnight. They've come upon us gradually over the last generation, years that were filled with shocks and tragedy. Often you see paralysis and stagnation and drift. You don't like it, and neither do I. What can we do? First of all, we must face the truth, and then we can change our course. We simply must have faith in each other, faith in our ability to govern ourselves, and faith in the future of this nation. 
Restoring that faith and that confidence to America is now the most important task we face. It is a true challenge of this generation of Americans. One of the visitors to Camp David last week put it this way. We've got to stop crying and start sweating. Stop talking and start walking. Stop cursing and start praying. The strength we need will not come from the White House, but from every house in America. We know the strength of America. We are strong. We can regain our unity. We can regain our confidence. We are the heirs of generations who survive threats much more powerful and awesome than those which challenge us now. Our fathers and mothers were strong men and women who shaped a new society during the Great Depression, who fought world wars, and who carved out a new charter of peace for the world. We ourselves are the same Americans who just 10 years ago put a man on the moon. We are the generation that dedicated our society to the pursuit of human rights and equality. We are at a turning point in our history. There are two paths to choose. One is the path I've warned about tonight, the path that leads to fragmentation and self-interest. Down that road lies a mistaken idea of freedom the right to grasp for ourselves some advantage over others. That path would be one of constant conflict between narrow interests ending in chaos and immobility. It is a certain route to failure. All of the traditions of the past, all of the lessons of our heritage, all of the promises of our future point to another path. The path of common purpose and the restoration of American values. That path leads to true freedom for our nation and ourselves. Whatever your political leanings are, whether you voted for the man or not, it took a lot of nerve to say those things. Uh, in reading a couple of books in the last few years about Jimmy Carter, though I've come to understand something that I didn't when he was president because I was too young to know it. He wasn't really concerned about who wanted to hear what. He was going to say what he thought was right. Uh, would to God that we would have men and women who would lead our nation today who would have the courage of their own convictions. But here's why I shared that this evening. I've been preaching now, as Ben said, for about coming up on 40 years. You know, don't think, don't try to add numbers in your mind, figure out how old I am. I started when I was four, so I'm actually 44. But I've been in churches all over the country. I've been in the generally irreligious north and the supposedly very religious south. I've been in the Bible belt. I've been in the buckle on the Bible Belt in Oklahoma City and now in Little Rock. I preached at city churches and rural churches, at giant churches and tiny churches, at seminars, meetings, encampments, and lectureships. If it's out there, I've probably spoken at it. In other words, I'm not exactly an uninformed neophyte. So please listen when I offer the following assessment. Many Christians in America today are undergoing a crisis of confidence. They are convinced that the future of the church is bleak, if it even has a future, and they don't know what to do about it. Now, I'm not trying to be Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farms and tell you that there's nothing to worry about. There's a little bit of reason for some of this pessimism. Those who study churches and church growth have recognized a crisis of sorts in American Christendom. Notice a couple of examples of that. Lee Strobel, an author probably known to many of you, says 80% of American churches are plateaued or declining in attendance. 10 churches a day are closing their doors for good. 
Now start adding those up, and then you see that that should be a cause for alarm for everyone. Mark Demaz, a man that preaches in Little Rock at the Mosaic Church, said this, It is estimated that as many as 60% of existing churches today will not exist in 25 years. And the buildings they own now will be owned by other entities, not churches. And we're already seeing that in some of our municipal areas. And then there's Generation Z. I talked about this a little bit at the Exposure Youth Camp in Huntsville just a few weeks ago. But Gen Z, and that's those born after the year 1999, is a group that identifies more with the non-Christian worldview than any preceding generation in America. 35% of Gen Z teens say they are atheist, agnostic, or unaffiliated with any religion, according to a new survey taken by the Barna Group. Now, such statistics don't exactly inspire confidence, but... And this is a crucial but. Have we forgotten the true source of our confidence? When Peter confessed to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, this was the response that he was given by the Lord. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Christ's church is eternal. It doesn't depend on our intelligence, our cleverness, our marketing acumen, or our political savvy. The church of Jesus Christ derives, thrives, and survives because of Jesus, because of Jesus, not because of me, not because of you, not because of anyone else. The church is not dependent on Jesus' imperfect followers, thankfully, because there's a lot of those. That's all that he has. Back in uh, the 1800s, this fella, um, believe it or not, he was not... um, in Tombstone, although he does look like one of the Earp brothers. This is actually a preacher by the name of Sam Jones. And Jones was a Methodist circuit-riding type preacher, and as he talked to different people in different churches in different parts of the country, Jones held what they used to term as revival meetings. He'd go in there and try to fire up the troops, as it were. And during these revival meetings, uh, he was preaching primarily to people who already believed in Christ. And he didn't really call them revival meetings. He called them something different. He called them quitting meetings. He said, we're having a quitting meeting here. And Jones basically tailored his message to those believers who had fallen into a bunch of sinful habits that they would be better off not practicing. And Jones was fairly effective. And his preaching caused a lot of men, a lot of women, to quit things like swearing, drinking, smoking, lying, gossiping, rooting for the Ohio State Buckeyes, a lot of things that you just don't have any excuse to do whatsoever. Well, One of the women that responded to the invitation one of the nights of the quitting meeting came down and, you know, this guy said, I've been drinking and I'm going to quit it. Another one said, I've been gambling and I'm going to quit it. This woman came down and Jones asked her, he said, well, you know, do you have something you'd like to say? No, not really. He said, well, then what is it that you're quitting? And she said this, I haven't been doing anything and I'm going to quit it. Well, that's probably something that we could do, too. There are a lot of folks in the church that aren't really doing anything, and it's high time that they quit that. But as we talk about restoring the confidence that we once had in the church, 
there are a few things that if we quit doing them, then we will be in the position to start doing some more positive things. In the time we have tonight, I want to suggest five things that we need to quit. Five things that we need to give up and turn over to God. Number one, quit substituting man's wisdom for God's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 25, Paul shares these familiar words. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. I really believe nationally that needs to start being put on refrigerators and license plates and a lot of other things. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Paul is making a really creative and interesting argument. He said, if God were capable of being ignorant, which he's not, God's ignorance would be wiser than your genius. That's what he is saying. I think there are some people in some churches that have largely forgotten this. And there's the reason I say that. How many Bible classes, how many sermons, how many lessons and other things do we see across this great land of ours taking place in church that are far more concerned about the flawed opinions of men than the flawless word of God? You ever sat in one of those Bible classes? I've been in a few and you're in there for 45, 50 minutes, and you haven't heard one thing that's a, a thus saith the Lord, but you've heard a lot about what Brother Joe Dokes says and what Jane Doe thinks, and you've heard this, well, my grandmammy said such and, well, you know, in all due respect, who cares what she said? You know, who cares what your dad said? I mean, I'm sure your dad was a fine fellow. I'm not trying to besmirch uh, his memory. What I'm saying is this, your opinion my opinion is just that. It's an opinion. The Word of God is not an opinion. The Word of God is fixed in the heavens. For a while in Oklahoma City, I had the privilege of working uh, with Avon Malone. Brother Malone was a wonderful teacher and preacher of God's Word. He was on the Bible faculty at Harding, later on at Oklahoma Christian. But Avon said to me on more than one occasion, he said, Brother Monan, our Bible classes today have degenerated into a pooling of our collective ignorance. He wasn't wrong. I've seen too many Bible classes that are long on the opinions of people and very short on the word of God. If we're going to have any effect, recognizing that the word of God, the power, the dunamis, is in fact the word and not just in a presentation. We've got to get back to teaching and preaching and sharing the word of God. We have to do that. Anytime you see a Bible class, a sermon that's based on nothing except personal opinion and pet agendas, you need to ask the question, what about the oracles of God? If any man speaks, Peter said, let him speak the very oracles, the very words of God. Well, we need to stop pretending that we know anywhere close to as much as God, because we don't. We need to quit substituting man's wisdom for God's wisdom. A related point is number two. We need to quit speaking where God has not spoken. One of the great hallmark sayings of the Restoration Movement came from the illustrious father of Alexander Campbell, Thomas Campbell. And he said these words in 1809, where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. You know, that made sense in 1809. It might make even more sense today. Because so many of the things that are dividing followers of Christ 
are in the realm of opinion and not in biblical doctrine. Now, I'm not trying to soft pedal this at all. Are there doctrinal problems in the world? Of course there are. But from church to church to church, so many of the things that get people sideways with each other are not the teachings of Scripture, but they're the opinions that people have on a host of subjects. Russell Moore takes his fellow Southern Baptists to task in writing these words. A Christian position on everything. He says, to say that our witness is to be prophetic is also to say that it is limited. When many in our culture think of Christians, their first thought is not of Irenaeus or Augustine or the church down the street, but instead of some televangelist receiving a word of knowledge that someone in the audience is experiencing an inflamed prostate and is in need of healing. Every time there's a national crisis or a natural disaster, there's some preacher claiming to speak for God, telling us exactly what sin God was punishing by sending that hurricane or allowing that terrorist attack. The problem with this is not that such actions give the church a bad reputation with outsiders. The primary problem with this is that it is idolatry. God can, of course, reveal the meaning behind his providence, but he rarely does so even in the pages of Scripture. Moreover, God repeatedly warns against those who speak on his behalf on the basis of a pretend authority and feigned insight. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 19 through 22. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. Jeremiah 23 and 21. Now, as churches of Christ generally avoid such practices as faith healing and premillennial speculation, you're probably somewhat comfortable with Moore's critique. But then he goes on to cover an area where we are really struggling these days. Listen carefully to this. Even apart from that Christian political engagement that often devolves fast into speaking a word for every aspect of our allies' political agenda as though there were word of God on everything, the last generation often saw voter guides with the Christian position on everything from the balanced budget amendment to the line item veto to the Panama Canal Treaty, complete with Bible verses attached to each. I've seen Christians advocate for an end to a Senate filibuster on a president's judicial nominations, pointing to the book of Judges and any lack of time delay between God's call of the judges and their assumption of office. This is not to say that a biblically informed wisdom won't have implications for each of these decisions and a myriad of others, but there is no authority from God to rule definitively on these matters of prudential judgment. And when the Christian position on everything just happens to line up exactly with the favored candidate or political party, how can we not expect cynicism from those who naturally starts to think that God simply means our team? When everything is prophetic, nothing is. Friends, this is going to be an interesting year. You know what's coming toward the end of the year in November, don't you? There's an election if you haven't been paying attention. I would like to go live in a cave for the next 11 months and then emerge after this is over. But I don't have the privilege to do that, nor do you. Here's what we better take great, great care in doing. Can we go back to speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent? The Lord does not need any of us to speak authoritatively on things he has not specifically addressed. You might have opinions about it. I've got opinions too. They're just opinions, okay? One of the things that we've done in Little Rock, and I'm not 
saying that we're the greatest uh, flavor of the month necessarily. But one of the things that we've done that I think is working in the place where they had to call out the 101st Airborne that nine little black children could go to Little Rock Central High School, we've got a congregation of almost 400 people with white folks and black folks together. And if you think that's not a big deal in Little Rock, you don't know much about Little Rock. It is. You know, one of the things that we've done that's enabled that to happen we don't get up in the pulpit and shove our political views down anybody's throat. There's no place in that for the gospel. Do you notice every time in the gospels when someone was trying to drag Jesus into some political debate or discussion or argument that he always, always refused to take the bait? He wasn't going to get into that. We don't need to get into that either. Okay. It's not my place to tell someone how to vote. It's not the elder's place to tell someone how to vote. I don't know, there's probably somebody out there, well, yeah, but what about on moral issues? Well, you know, yeah, you got a brain. God's given you that. You can figure this out for yourself. But when we get up and God says to do this, God says to do that, are you familiar with uh, Aesop's fable, The Boy Who Cried Wolf? He keeps crying wolf when there's no wolf, wolf, and there's no wolf, and then finally a wolf shows up and he cries wolf, and what happens? Nobody listens to him and the wolf eats him. That might happen to the church if we keep making the mistake of being political. We don't need to do it, okay? Quit speaking where God has not spoken. Give people the benefit of the doubt and just assume that they're going to be intelligent enough to reach some of their own conclusions without your opinion weighing them down. Here's another one. Quit apologizing for the Bible. In Psalm chapter 11 and verse 3, the inspired writer David asked this question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? You understand that we're living at a time when the foundation of God's word is under attack. It was said in the year 2007 that that was the year of the atheist. You had people like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and others that were railing against God, railing against the Bible, railing against Christianity. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people who are ostensibly Christian, people who would identify as Christian, but they're undermining what the Bible teaches because it doesn't line up with their pet ideas and their own agenda. I'm talking about outraged Christians whose views on LGBTQ issues and a number of other related issues are leading them to contradict and disobey the clear teachings of Scripture. We're already starting to see this in some places. I think we're probably going to see more of this. Okay? When it comes to, to, to going with culture and the majority opinion there are going with Scripture, you realize there's not going to be a lot of continuity between those two things. And you're going to have to make a decision. Do you believe the Bible? Are you going to believe the 51% majority, whatever that says? Well, that the Bible is inspired is obvious to us. It's not maybe obvious to a lot of other people. But here's the thing. People are watching us. And they're going to know, are we going to follow the scripture or not? Okay, they're, even the ones that don't say much about it, they're looking. And there are several in the church that are testing we cannot change the word of God to accommodate those whose agenda is worldly and not godly. And that's what we're seeing too many times. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you don't get one thing from this lesson tonight, get this. Don't ever apologize for the word of God. Don't you do it, okay? You can apologize for yourself. You can apologize for not living up to the call that God has given you, but don't apologize for the word of God. We do not sit in judgment on the word of God. It sits in judgment on us. And, you know, there have always been atheists out there railing against God. What does Psalm 14.1 say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Don't worry about those folks. We'll deal with them. We'll meet them on the field of battle and engage them in intellectual rigor. We can do that. I'm talking about the ones within the church, that Trojan horse that's within Christianity itself, in which people pretend to follow the Bible, but when push comes to shove, they're not staying with the Bible. Quit apologizing for the Bible. Bible doesn't need us to apologize for it. Here's another one. We need to quit living like the world. In 1 Peter 2 and verses 11 and 12, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In church after church after church across this country, is that what's happening? In some places it is, but not in every place. Here's the question. Do most Christians in most churches, do they really stand out from society? For our holiness, our selflessness, our chastity, our benevolence, and our self-discipline? Or could it not be said that many church members are living lives that are nearly indistinguishable from those who never give God a second thought? I've seen a lot of that. A lot of it. Yeah, I've got friends that are not Christians and they live with their girlfriends. And they do all kinds of other things. I've seen people in the church, they live with their girlfriends. No difference. What, what are we doing here? Okay, what are we doing? Well, we're not distinguishing ourselves by the lives that we're living, according to Peter. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. For 16 years, I preached at one of the largest churches of Christ in the world. In 2013, we averaged 1,300 a week. That was the average. You know what I saw in the 16 years there? I saw virtually every sin that you could think about and then about 10 more that you hadn't thought about exhibited in the lives of our members. I wrote some of them down. Drug addiction and drug abuse. Drunkenness, pornography, greed, sexual immorality, adultery, gossip, family dysfunction, fraud, robbery, racism. We could go on, but you know, you got to be in bed in a couple of hours here. You name it, and I saw it in my congregation. We had an elder that went to prison because he embezzled and committed fraud of over a hundred million dollars. And I'm supposed to stand up and do something about this? You know, it made me sick to my stomach is what it did. I had people that would find out. What I did, I'd be at a golf tournament, I'd be on the radio uh, doing my gig as the pigskin preacher. You know, So-and-so goes to church with you? Yeah. Same guy that just uh, you know, defrauded investors out of $100 million? Yeah, he goes to your church? What do you say to that? Anything you can say. No wonder, no wonder so many outside the church are repelled 
and not attracted by the lives that they see so many Christians live. Alexander Campbell understood this two centuries ago when he wrote these words. Were all the common virtues of justice, truth, fidelity, and honesty practiced by all Christians, how many mouths would be stopped? And how many new arguments in favor of Jesus Christ could all parties find? That's Campbell's typically flowery way of saying, if we live better lives, there'd be more people interested in Jesus. And he's right. He was right then. He's right today. You want to make a difference in this world? Quit living like the world. The world's got plenty of people who are basically... Um, in the words of Bon Scott, on the highway to hell. We don't need to be in that number. Quit living like the world. And finally, number five, we need to quit pretending that people are not lost. Listen to these words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In these words, Jesus tells us that most people are lost, blindly traveling the road that leads to destruction. Do you know that churches of Christ used to believe this? And we tried to carry out the Savior's mission to seek and save what was lost, Luke 19 and verse 10. But even a cursory look these days at our preaching, our teaching, our budgets, our programs, indicates a declining interest in evangelism as we focus on ourselves. I was at a church in Oklahoma decades ago, and we were trying to start some neighborhood Bible studies. The idea was that we were going to use our people, and they were going to reach out to the people in their neighborhoods, and they were going to host a Bible study at their house. You didn't have to come to church. You could come to uh, you know, Joe Blow's house over there, and they'd you know, fix a meal or something. And we had this great program. We, we'd worked with some other people. And I remember my heart just sank when the elders looked at me and said, we don't want you teaching the Bible to those people. We want you teaching the Bible to our people. I'm like, you know, that's, no, that's not it. Folks, we're saved. I mean, presumably, most of us, right? But there are a lot of people in the world that aren't. But if you look at most churches, they're worried about us, 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 us. What do we need? What do we, oh, that's fine. You know, you've got to feed the flock. I understand that. But there's a lot of sheep out there that have wandered off from the sheepfold. And they need help. And they need rescuing. There's simply a declining interest in evangelism in too many congregations. I'm really thankful that all of you here take that seriously. Ben and I had a great conversation at dinner tonight, and I'm glad you got a young man who sees this need, and I'm glad that you're coming alongside of him and working with him. God bless you for that. Keep doing it, because that's necessary. In February of 2018, I was at a little rural congregation in Arkansas preaching. I was between churches at that time, and I was kind of doing my own circuit riding. I preached over there six or eight times. When I say this was a rural church, Right next to the church building was a soybean field. I don't know if you can get any more rural that you have a soybean field right next to the church, but they did. I loved the folks there. They were good people. And I was waiting to preach, and it was one of those things. I think I'd been there, and the service was going on an hour before I was up there. And, you know, if the service is an hour in and I haven't gotten up yet, I start getting the shakes. I'm like, you know, i, I got to get up there. i got to say something. But I was waiting, and then they had one more thing uh, before I was going to be able to get up. And they were showing a video. I'm like, okay, a video. I still remember this video. It was really unusual. I was sitting next to my father, and he's traditional enough that he generally hates stuff like this. I don't like it, but, you know, I wasn't in charge. So they're, they're playing the video. Some of you may have heard of it. This was the name of the video. 
a letter from hell. Now, that got my attention. You know, you mentioned hell, and I usually I perk up and pay attention to that. Well, here's what this was about. It was a dramatic presentation told from the perspective of a teenager who had died in an automobile accident. This teenager was not a Christian. He was unprepared for the world to come, and he describes in terror being carried into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's pretty terrifying. And while while his Christian friend knew that he was not a Christian, he never said a word to him. So this young man who dies and finds himself in hell, he writes a letter to his friend who's still on earth. His friend who had repeatedly downplayed his commitment to Christ, and he asked the Christian friend one thing. He said, why did you never try to share your faith in Christ with me? You knew I wasn't a Christian, and you never said anything, even though you knew I was lost. That was about as uncomfortable, I think, as I've ever felt in church in my life. I I was considering crawling under the pew, but I had to get up in about five minutes and preach, and I figured that was a good idea. But, you know, being uncomfortable, I think, was kind of the whole point of that. And then to double down on it, the aged song leader got up and led the church in singing, You Never Mentioned Him to Me. That just about tore it. And I thought to myself, as I was listening to that, how many of our congregations in in this country would find that objectionable and offensive? Well, you made people uncomfortable. You, You made people squirm in their seats. You made people think about that there might be some folks that are going to hell. There are some folks going to hell. Did you read the words of Jesus? And while we amuse ourselves to death, billions of souls hurtle toward an eternity unprepared to meet God. Maybe instead of trying to fit in with everybody and trying to make everyone feel comfortable and not ruffle any feathers and not offend anyone, maybe we might want to start preparing people to meet God. And to answer the question, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? I don't know what the future holds for you or for me or for the church. But I know the one who holds the future. We need to quit cowering in fear about the church. You remember what Jesus said about his church? He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will survive, regardless of what you do, regardless of what I do, regardless of what anyone does, because it's Jesus' church. The church does not depend on us. It depends on Christ. But there is someone out there whose soul depends on you, because if you don't tell them about Jesus, they're not going to know. If you don't set that example, they're never going to see it. If you don't invite them to come to worship with you and get to know God, they're never going to know him. We've got to get busy in sharing with the world what Jesus has done for us. Okay, I know we got people, well, if the church doesn't do this, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. I, I can't control all that, nor can you. But what we need to do is get busy doing the Lord's work. And if we quit doing some of these things that are holding us back, Here's a prediction. We're going to see the power of God unleashed in his church in ways that maybe we've never seen before in our lifetimes. Do you know as our world gets progressively more wicked and more confused and we don't even know who's a man and who's a woman anymore, you realize this is not sustainable. You know that, don't you? Sooner or later, that pendulum that has swung all the way over here, it's going to swing all the way back over there. 
and people are going to ask this question. What's different about you people? What's different about you Christians? What's different about your church? You understand these things. You have strong marriages, and you have healthy families, and you have a sense of purpose and meaning, and I don't have that. Will you share with me what you have? We will be in a situation to make a difference if we remain faithful to God. And if we quit playing games and get down to the business of seeking and saving the lost, as Jesus tells us to do. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. I realize this probably hasn't been the most evangelistic of sermons because we've been basically giving an analysis of some of the things that are holding the church back. But on the other hand, the things that hold the church back are usually the things that hold me back. And if there's something that I see in my life that doesn't need to be there, I need to ask God's help in getting rid of that thing. I need to ask God's strength to make me the kind of man that he calls me to be. Maybe you need to be the kind of woman that he's called you to be. If there's something that has caused your commitment to Christ to wax and wane, what better time than tonight than to say, I'm making a new beginning as we're basically just two weeks into the new year. 2024 can be a year when we cast aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and we start running with perseverance the race set out before us. That we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Whether it's obedience to the gospel and faith, repentance, and baptism, whether it's coming back to God and being restored back to fellowship with him. If the invitation of Jesus is calling you in a special way tonight, we invite you to answer that call. Won't you come as we stand?